I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You are listening to Alone, a love story, and I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 16, Sidelines. Vanishing. Revival is sitting across from me. I haven't seen him in over a month, not since the epic night of the salmon and the sex and the swirling excitement of a man cooking in my kitchen. It was a slow fade. He'd text me but could never make plans and his reasons were vague. But now he wants to explain why he vanished after that amazing night. So here we are, staring across the table from one another in a noisy bar. He has a Manhattan and I have a sidecar. We drink them pretty quickly. Revival says he thinks about me all the time and still wants to see me, but too much is going on in his life. I nod. He says he bought a house for his son and his son's mother to live in, and that's why he disappeared for the past month. I blink. Are you moving in too? He says he doesn't know. All he knows is he wants to see his son more, he needs to see him more, he doesn't know what else to do. There's a sinking feeling in me, but something else too. Relief? In the month since our last amazing night together, I had time to consider what this thing with revival was, or wasn't. His disappearing act hurt my feelings at first, but not as much as you'd expect. Not as much as I'd expect. I mean... Revival was my first real dating experience since the bomb. My first brush with normal courtship, movies and dinners, and an incredible sexual chemistry. But beyond that, there actually wasn't much else. We didn't have all that much to talk about. He wasn't the total package. And so, as he explains his complicated situation to me in this bar, I realize I don't need him to be my boyfriend. I just want to see him from time to time. Just have him come to my bed and make me feel the way he does. That's it. I tell him so. And that becomes our MO after that. He comes and goes. I never know when, and I never ask questions. We stop the real dating. No more movies or dinners. Our meetings are always at my place where I answer the door barely clothed, and we only bother with a few minutes of small talk before falling into hours of incredible sex all over my apartment. In this way, he's my favorite. My favorite lover. That's a thing now in this life I still don't recognize and never could have imagined or wanted. I was once a wife who was loved. Now, I have a favorite lover.
I asked no questions about Revival's situation. The situation with the son and the son's mother and the house and the does he or doesn't he live there. I don't ask him about anything. He doesn't ask me. I see other guys. More ones and duns. Because no one is right. Because I'm not right. Winter turns into spring. Spring turns to summer. I start to feel more conflicted about Revival's situation. Morally, it feels indefensible. What if his son's mother is more than he's letting on? What if they really are a couple? That would make me the mistress, a thing that aside from being just plain ironic, also makes me hate myself, makes me a hypocrite. I decide to stop seeing him, no matter how comfortable he is, no matter how easy and amazing it is when he's in my bed. I make a final push to stop the incessant drinking and hooking up with men. I'm actually tired of it. The awkward first meeting, and the more often than not awkward first fumbling in the dark. I'm tired of having sex with people I don't know, and in many cases, don't even like that much. Now, I want to find a real boyfriend. So I try and go on real dates with men my own age. Dates where no sex is involved. But finding a real someone isn't as easy as landing a superficial hookup. There's a lot more rejection and disappointment this way, and it's trying. The small talk can be excruciating, the way they don't laugh at my jokes, or the way I don't get theirs. The times I think the date was awesome, but then I never hear from them again. The times they're fun and sweet and nice and into me, but of course, I'm not the least bit attracted to them. All spring, I go on what feels like a hundred first dates, and never a second date. They're all just wrong. Here's what I've learned about dating. It feels like an unending audition, and you never fucking get the part. You're always just this close. But I want to get the part. I want someone to wrap their arms around me when I've had a tough day. I want someone who will trace my face with their finger, look me in the eyes, and tell me they think I'm a beautiful, walking bonfire. I want to walk down the street, holding hands with someone. I want to drive my car with the windows down while he picks our favorite songs off my iPod. Yes, I still have an iPod. I want someone whose neck I can kiss after I pick a fluff off his sweater. I want to iron his shirts and give him a hundred orgasms. I want to look up from a book I'm reading and find his eyes looking at me, eyes that smile even before his mouth does. And when it does, that smile is the thing I live for. If I exist, he must exist too. Cross your fingers for me. Divorce Office We're standing outside a door that says, I shit you not. 
divorce office. It's June 2013, and as you may have guessed, we're here to sign away the end of our marriage. But the divorce office is locked. The ex-husband has made us drive here to the northern edge of Toronto to sign the papers with some dial-a-lawyer he's found on the internet. He hadn't bothered to call ahead to tell her we were coming, so dial-a-lawyer is not here. I stand in a beige hallway, staring at the door while he frantically phones and emails her. Beside the words divorce office, there's a graphic of two silhouettes, a man and a woman with their backs to one another. We find this insanely funny and try to take a photo of ourselves with our backs to one another. I text my friend, can you believe it, divorce office? He replies, if that was in a screenplay, it would have been sent back with the note, two on the nose, think of something less obvious. I repeat this to the ex-husband and we laugh, but the levity doesn't last. We start talking about the end of our marriage and it isn't long before I'm saying, how can you do this? Like a broken record. I go outside and stare at the wasteland of the industrial park we're in. Why am I even here at the divorce office? How is any of this real? Dial a lawyer finally shows up. We sign the affidavit and a check for $200. The ex-husband is so breezy, making jokes. He checks his phone at least three times. We get back into my car, and I burst into tears. He sits in the passenger seat and waits silently for me to stop. Then I drive us back downtown so we can both go to work. Outside of the massive old school he teaches at, we sit. I stare at the building where they both worked and wonder if they'd ever had sex in there somewhere in some long-forgotten hallway or in one of the offices on the fourth floor. This is how I think. This is how I get. Okay, please get out of my car now. And he replies, No, you're upset. I wasn't there for you before when you needed me, and I'm going to be here for you now. I'm not going to desert you anymore. I want to help you. My grip on the steering wheel would win me an Ironman contest. I say, honestly, what would help is if you just got out of the car. He sits there. More silence. And then he makes a little joke. And I laugh. We hug. You're so stupid but cute. My hand in his hair. Then he says, Oh, I meant to ask you, do you want to have any more kids? Just like that. As if he's asking me if I want to go get some pizza. Uh, I don't think so. But even if I did, what's it to you? Well, I meant, do you want to have any more kids with me? My head literally explodes. Yours did too just now hearing that, didn't it? 
do I want to have another baby with him? Are you fucking serious? Because really, is he fucking serious? Why would I do that? We just signed our divorce an hour ago. He is really fucking serious. He says, It's just I'm thinking of getting a vasectomy. But before I do, I just want to be sure with you because you're the only person I'd want to have a baby with. So if you did, he wants to kill me. He won't stop until he kills me. He can't help himself. It's like he can't help himself. I cry and cry. That's all I am to you. A baby-making machine? No. No. This date will kill me. How far will he push me? I suddenly feel profoundly sad for whatever poor woman will come after me. I say, Why would you get a vasectomy anyway? You're only 40. What if you fall in love again and that woman's never had a baby and she wants a baby and can't have a baby because you're a stupid idiot who got a vasectomy when he was single and only 40? Why do you care about a fictional woman? Because I'm nice. And he tries to touch my face, but I flick his hand away. Because first of all, I feel sorry for her for having fallen in love with you. But second of all, I feel sorry she won't be able to have a baby because you're an idiot. She's not even real. It looks like he's kind of enjoying this, but I've completely lost my mind. Get out of my car! Not till you're okay. I laugh. I laugh and laugh and continue to grip the steering wheel with the strength of ten men. I'm not okay. I will not be okay. I was okay, and you destroyed me, and now I am not okay. He sits there. I sit there. I want to close my eyes and sleep and not wake up until summer. I want to know what I have done to deserve this. We stare at the teenagers, Jay walking back and forth from the school to the pizza place. My breathing and heart rate start to return to normal, and he finally assesses I'm fine enough for him to get out of the car. From the street, he flashes me a peace sign. I flash him one back. But when he turns around, I flip him the bird. Fuck you, a baby. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. And then I realize, this is it. The divorce. This is it. Every decision is mine from now on. He's made all of the biggest decisions in my life for 13 years, including this divorce. But it's signed, so this is it. I feel 
lighter. I drive straight home instead of going to work. I crawl into bed and sleep for four hours straight. And when I wake up, I feel a strange calm. I'm okay. He didn't destroy me. I'm okay. I'm okay. He didn't he destroy didn't me. Destroy okay. He I'm didn't okay. destroy me. He didn't destroy me. Canadian. It's a hot one this year, the summer of 2013, the second summer alone. Exactly one year ago, I was a shelled out mess who ran to Italy to be with my childhood friend, to sit with her in the mountains and at the seaside and among Roman ruins, to cry about the man I loved and how he deceived me, to feel the kind of comfort and support that only your oldest friend in the world can give to be anchored to something, if even for a short while. Now, that same friend is here in Toronto, on vacation. She's in my car with me, and even though it's been a year, the ex-husband is still all we're talking about. She's shaking her head at my fairness, at the way we separated without acrimony, without courts, without me finding his mistress and punching that putana in the face. She finds this very un-Italian of me and disappointedly shakes her head. You're so nice, so Canadian. I laugh and tell her, plenty of Canadian women take revenge on their cheating husbands or find some way to shame the mistress or at the very least punch that putana in the face. I just don't want to do that. I just want us to be on good terms so we can raise Bertie. She sighs. Well, at least you damned him to hell, right? At first, I think she's joking. I mean, what? But she's dead serious. Obviously, I should have at least damned him to hell, asked God to punish him, if I wasn't going to. We're in my car, she says this, and I stare out at the lake from the expressway we're on, the sun blinding, the traffic crawling. Holy shit, I've never damned him to hell. I've never even wished a bad thing on him. What's wrong with me? Her voice cuts through the static in my head. What's wrong with you? Like an echo of my own self-doubt. He had an affair. Like any good Italian woman, you should have at least damned him to hell. I sure would have. Affair. I hate that word. It sounds so romantic. Like something that just happened one night in Paris or something. It's so whimsical, like a magical feeling that just swept two people up and caused them to act beyond their control. It also bugs me because it sounds like a singular event. And what he did was far from singular. I even said this to him once, right after the bomb, as we were packing and dividing everything in two. Please. Please stop calling it an affair, like it was this charming mistake you made once. It was over and over and over again. In the car with my Italian friend, I think about wishing him ill. But I just don't. I hate him. I do. 
but not him the person. I hate what he did. I hate that I was an afterthought. I know he has his own demons. But honestly, all I want is for him to be happy with his life, for this all not to have been for nothing. I want him to find a way to be a better man than he is, than he's been. I guess I am too Canadian. I guess I don't know how to damn him to hell. Instead, it becomes a prayer. A sure thing. Revival is back. I've given in after several months of ignoring his texts. I can't help it. I need that thing he has, that way about him, that's just right, even when the rest of the situation is wrong. It's 1 a.m. and I'm in a bathroom stall at the back of a bar texting Revival. I swore I wouldn't contact you again, but I want to see you. He instantly replies, Hey baby, how you doing? Like I haven't been ignoring him for months. I tell him I'm out dancing with friends and give him the intersection. He says he'll be there in 20 minutes. Revival pulls up in a fancy-looking SUV, and I get in. Damn, will you look at you in that dress? Hot fire rushes through me. I just spent all night dancing in that dress to excellent and sexy music, but not one guy danced with me or talked to me or even looked at me as far as I could tell. As we pull away, Revival puts his hand on my hand. Baby, I have missed you. At my place, he kisses and kisses me, says, I've missed you, damn, I've missed you, over and over again. I can't hear it enough. I let it fill all of the empty space inside me, those spare rooms. Revival is looking at me, right into my eyes. His skin is so soft and warm. I brush the sweat from his forehead, kiss his eyelids, his gorgeous mouth. I nestle my head in his chest. You have to come back again soon. I know he won't. He doesn't. It's a few weeks later. He's supposed to be here at 6.30, but at 6.20, I get that familiar sink in my stomach at the sound of the text notification. Maybe he isn't canceling. Maybe he's downstairs and the intercom isn't working. But that, of course, is wishful thinking. Something's come up with his son. He's at his sister's. He doesn't know what time he'll be able to get out of there. <sighs> I'm sitting on the edge of my bed, in lingerie. 
I head to the fridge and stand in the open door, staring blankly. God, I better go shopping tomorrow before Bertie gets here. There's nothing for a kid to eat. There's nothing for anyone to eat. I forage a bit, then scarf down two pieces of salami, just plain like that, at the kitchen counter, still in this goddamn getup like a fool. I make myself a gin and tonic and can't be bothered to cut a wedge of lime. I consider a smoke, but the rain is so heavy outside. Plus, I'd have to put some actual clothes on. I'm too lazy to even do that, now that tonight's sure thing has left me hanging. You know, it isn't good when your sure thing isn't so sure. I watched the rain. I think about how once I was part of love, and now I'm apart from it, standing on the sidelines in wasted, sexy underwear. You're listening to Alone, a love story, written by me, Michelle Parisi. It's a CBC original podcast. The story editor is Veronica Simmons. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Veronica in our hometown of Toronto. I've got a lot more to share with you at cbc.ca slash alone. The stories behind the story I'm telling, photos, and a lot about music. Stick with me. I want to tell you what lonely feels like. Hey, there's another CBC original podcast I want to tell you about, On Drugs. And I want to tell you about it while I'm on drugs. The show is called On Drugs, and it explores our complicated relationship with drugs with host Jeff Turner. Everything from caffeine to cocaine, from ibuprofen to ayahuasca. The stakes are higher in season two as Canada moves to legalize marijuana. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Alone. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.